This is Giant. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, get him out. Podcast episode 11 with myself, Hank of Fire Force Ventures, and my lovely and voluptuous host, Bindu. Huh? Hank, to you too, man. How you doing? Doing well. Let's get into it. Walking over to where the terrorist bodies were lying, I could not help but notice the smell. It was a smell I would never forget. The combination of unwashed bodies, drying blood, wood smoke, and body fluids all baked in the hot sun, put out a smell that was sweet but nauseating, very very similar to the smell around abattoirs. Taking a closer look at the bodies, I noticed that the faces were of youngsters similar in age to mine, 19. I wondered what promises had been made to them when they were convinced to join the ranks of Zanla. In the distance, I could hear the beat of the approaching helicopter coming to remove the bodies and take the trooper wounded by the mortar bomb back to base for further treatment. That was a very small excerpt from the book Bush War Operator, Memoirs of the Rhodesian Light Infantry, Cellus Scouts, and Beyond by A.J. Bellum, a veteran of the Rhodesian Light Infantry and Cellus Scouts, among other things, and a friend of the show, actually. Yeah. To some extent. So again, you mentioned he was... 19 years old during that contact. That was in Mozambique, I think. I believe so. 1973. So EG had quite the career that started first in the Rhodesian Light Infantry and took him through the elite selection course, well, the grueling selection course of the elite Sleuth Scouts, and eventually to the Transkai Special Forces, which was basically a small Bantu stand that was established as a quote-unquote black homeland by the apartheid government of South Africa as these almost puppet regimes to kind of give off the facade that the uh, African population had home rule to some extent. He saw a lot of stuff in his career. He was involved in some of perhaps the most notable operations of both the Rhodesian Light Infantry, the, the major ones, obviously, Op Hurricane, Op Thrasher, come to mind. I believe Op Repulse as well. He was definitely an Op Repulse. So, all those major operational areas during the Rhodesian Bush War, and, of course, famously, Op Eland, who was present, and the raid at Mapai, uh, which he was present at as well, were... Um, Dale Collett was wounded, Tim Bax was wounded, two names well known to those well versed in Rhodesian history, and Warren Officer Yanni Nell was killed in action. Uh, I believe that was 1976 in, in Mapai. His book, in many ways, was my introduction. His book, in many ways, was my introduction to the Rhodesian Bush War. It's kind of formatted in not the most linear fashion. It's a lot of short stories. Given the breadth of his career and how, I guess, uniquely long it was for a lot of Rhodesians, and given that he stuck around, a lot of Rhodesians would have done their national service contracts about three years and then 
go out into a reserve unit, leave to South Africa and get out of the war entirely, uh, go back, go to the UK if they had some connections to the UK or Australia and just get the heck out of there. He stuck it through. He stuck it through from 67 until the very, very end, around 1980, 1981, when he went to Transkei. He really, really did stick it through. So his career saw... So he really, really did stick it through. And his career would ultimately see him going from the very beginning of the war when the Rhodesian security forces were a very British military formation that was kind of a... Maybe perhaps British is not the best way. A very colonial, motley crew of rustic pioneer soldiers clad in short shorts and tennis shoes to the most professional fighting force and the most effective fighting force on a shoestring budget in Africa and perhaps one of the most effective in human history given the context. Um, and in my opinion, these young men and what they went through in, in the context of the Cold War and how they were treated by the world during the time and and the, and the great crimes of Zanla and Zipra during the Rhodesian Bush War. These were, in my opinion, Africa's greatest generation. And this book, when, again, it was, was my introduction. So it's a huge honor to, uh, to go through this book. And the right behind us, actually, as we're recording, uh, we have a, a plaque signed, um, well, I guess handmade and, and signed by A.J. Bellum. So it's a huge honor to have that and uh, to, to cover this book because means a lot to me for sure and if you want to see the plaque you'll have to uh you have to subscribe to our buyers club or subscribe to this podcast and join our buyers club because uh we're we do videos for for the uh buyers club over at fire force ventures i digress the book itself again absolutely fantastic read and it's it's pretty chronological in how it goes over his career right mm-hmm. yeah yeah it uh it starts off uh 67, I think, the first short story. Again, it's like a collection of short stories. Yes, it's yeah. Actually, it's a pretty easy read overall. Yeah, I found it quite similar to... Uh, not not exactly the same. There are clear differences between it and Fire Force, but it is, I think, um, fairly similar. And, I mean, this is the number one book. If you're looking for... Um, I mean, when you type in Rhodesia on Amazon. This book, I, th- I think, is the first thing you is see. I-, I believe so, yeah. That's that or maybe a Rhodesian flag is first. That, that's pro- Well, they don't sell Rhodesian flags. On Amazon doesn't sell Ram- Rhodesian flags? Anymore. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. They've got a... So, uh, if you want a Rhodesian flag, you buy one of Fire Force Ventures. Yes. Anyways, enough. I've plugged myself twice in the past five minutes. Anyways, Shameless. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's what it came up for. It was probably 2015... Mm-hmm. when I was just searching Rhodesia on Amazon. must have been 2015, maybe 2016. Just because I was kind of interested. I didn't know a lot about the history, but this was my introduction. And uh, and really, the, the big takeaway I took from this, because it doesn't really go over the politics. There's not a lot with the racial dynamics, because Bellum kind of has a easygoing existence as a youth. He hangs out with, like, he, he mentioned he's his best friend's, like, black at the beginning of it. And they just, you know, they fish and they hang out. 
as uh, I think the voice. term son of the soil comes to mind because I mean basically he grew up in like a little fishing village and like yeah. they were ducking crocodiles and catching things by the water's edge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then uh, na- you know the sixth uh, he turns seventeen and national service rolls around. He has to do his three years, or so he thinks three years, and uh, he. As a lot of young men did, go into goes into the relatively new Rhodesian Light Infantry. At this point, I think they were still in a battalion structure. They hadn't become commandos yet, or, if I remember correctly. So it's like first battalion. Is that what it says? You would know better than I would. Know that. I, I'm not actually sure. I think he just says Rhodesian Light Infantry. Yes, so I'm rather hopeless when it comes to organization. Logistics is not my strong suit. Understood. So he joins up with the Rhodesian Light Infantry. Um, and again, it's because it's short story format. You don't get the deep chronology of, I was 16, I did this. I was 17, I did this. 18, did this. Like, it just, it goes right into the first chapter, the first real chapter. He's on patrol in really, really, really bad conditions. They run out of water. Again, they're a motley crew at this point. This is 1967. So UDI had been declared two years before where basically the Republic of Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, declared independence from the United Kingdom because they basically did not want to have what happened in the Congo. Yes. It was slowly happening in Portugal where they had this huge drawn-out war over multiple countries where all the, the... African nationalist guerrillas were being supplied by China and the Soviet Union. They did not want that in Rhodesia. No, they did not and want they, majority rule or war. Exactly. That was they, they, yeah, uh, accompanying majority exactly. rule. Exactly. And a lot of these guys at this point that had already been in or did their national service, most famously John Edmund, who's the famous Rhodesian singer, um, who, we, who we have a letter of his in the background <laughs> here as well. Secret bunker so of they, Rhodesiana. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So he and a lot of other young men were involved in guarding the border. And it's in this context that uh, AJ joins. And they're, they're guarding the Rhodesian border from refugees coming in from the Congo and just kind of spill over from all these other wars and conflicts that are happening around them at this stage. Because by this stage, the wars of decolonization, and there were lots of wars of decolonization all over Sub-Saharan Africa, they were starting to really kick off and, and turn hot. And um, Rhodesia and South Africa were relatively calm places where the war was on their doorstep, but it was now, the moment they declared UDI, they recognized, like, the, you know, the war is coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, two African nationalist groups came to prominence at this point, ZANU and... Zapu. Zapu. Led by um, Robert Mugabe and Joshua Nakoma, respectively. We talked about this at length, and I think if you want a better detailed history of the whole Rhodesian conflict, talk or check out our podcast with uh, Chris Cox. Yes. Episode one with Chris Cox. Our, our first two episodes are... Uh, also deal with it as well. Six, yeah, our podcast. sixth episode, the interview, and our... Episode seven on Dennis Crewcamp's book. Yeah, we, yes, we, we we do go over quite a bit, yes. so you can obviously reference those podcasts if you want the full history. But the interesting thing about, well, not just 
not just A.J. Bellum, but also also like Dennis Prokop, because these guys served very early in the war. And very early in the war, it's quite different than the war that, for example, Chris Cox fights. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he describes in Survival Course and Fire Force, which are his, his release books, which we sell again. We sell on Fire Force Fighters. Three promotions, <laughs> and we're not even 15 minutes yeah, into the podcast. The so, but yeah, I, I want to emphasize that. <laughs> I want to emphasize that point, though. It's it's a very different war, and the war changes. It has many, many different stages, and there's kind of periods where things kind of die down, and then they they pick up again. And our good friend Larry Jenkins, when he entered into kind of, well Rhodesian service, he still suspected it was relatively calm because there were all kinds of diplomatic agreements and arrangements being made behind the mm-hmm. scenes and people were told oh the war is going to be over the guerrillas are going to lay down their arms the army is going to lay down their arms and we're going to make we're going to make peace and there's going to be majority rule and the war just kept escalating yeah and then ceasefires were not totally honored or didn't materialize and we go on for uh, about that political history forever but that's not what this podcast is about it's about a young 17-year-old kid, basically, or 18-year-old kid in the bush. Out of water on his first op. Things are very poorly organized. Uh, they're, they're, stu- they're, they're still learning how to operate in these conditions. Now, they're sergeant majors and NCOs and commanding officers at this point. We're all Malayan war vets. Some of them had done peacekeeping service, as I mentioned, on the Congolese border. Just to, again, because at the very beginning, the intention was not to have any spillover from these other conflicts, but the spillover did happen. And he jumps ahead from his first story a few years, I think, to 1972, when it goes from these kind of almost peacekeeping patrols, almost like. Uh, police actions if you will right almost like it like police officers walking the beat now a little better arms than the typical police officer but they're walk they're 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 acting like you know their, their mission is basically to police the borders and make sure that these that incursions but, are not being made by zimbabwean nationalists that have left zimbabwe to go to these other countries like tanzania there are security forces in the purest sense of the term. Exactly. Yeah. And they were known throughout the entire conflict as the Rhodesian security forces. Like that, was, that would have been the, the mm-hmm. faction, so to speak. So they were security forces in the purest sense of the term, but operationally in terms of counterinsurgency warfare, they had a lot of experience from Malaya, but um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't disseminated at all levels. And he talks about the struggles of dealing with just the conditions, and it, it's it's a recurring theme throughout the book. And we really do have to mention the Mopani flies are a big deal. Um, the what, what was the name of the, those those, uh, those buzzards? The buzzards, like the Chiwari, birds. Chiwari buzzards. Chiwari buzzards. I had to look up that word. Chiwari buzzards. Mopani flies. Extreme heat. Buffalo thorns. He gets into it throughout the book, but it's like fighting inside a sauna. Yes. With lots of bugs and yeah. things that want to eat you. Yes. And, 
Now, you've never been to Africa. I have. And I can tell you that he's exact... Like, now, I've been to a place that was not nearly as thick bush. But, um, yeah, the heat in Africa. Like, I would not want to fight a war in there. It would be impossible to fight a war at, like, midday or early afternoon in Africa. It's just so hot. And that's what they were doing in 1967. Yeah. And, they, you know, it didn't, didn't work very well. So, again, he, he, hops, he hops forward a bit to... Um, 1972 on his first patrol and I, I think that's now it's not explicitly said but I do believe it's probably like the first time after years of patrolling so he's in the army now I think for um, I guess that's 72 and because he doesn't again it's it's all these short stories they're pretty condensed it's 1972 he actually runs into a, like terrorists for one of the first few times and to, to his frustration, again, just because the SOPs, which are like the standard operating procedures and stuff, are not very straightforward, the coin ops are a little little shaky, there are lessons from Malaya, which was a bit of a different conflict, mm-hmm. and the tactics were still the same as the Malayan conflicts, as, as the Malayan confrontation, where a lot of Indonesian soldiers had served. So there's a bit of a disconnect on the ground. And... His first contact doesn't go super well. So, uh, there's an excerpt for that. That's that's page 46 there. Making enough noise to wake the dead and ignoring the burning, stinging nettles, the continual rivers of sweat pouring into our eyes and having to compete for space with the ever-present Mopani flies, we cursed, kicked, and fought our way through the thick undergrowth trying to keep up with the tracking team. We were about to have a smoke break when several shots cracked over our heads. We all froze. We did not know what to do. For most of us, this was the first time that we had been fired at in anger. Doing what comes naturally, we hit the ground and waited. Nothing happened. There were no more shots, just an expectant silence, as if nature itself was holding its breath, waiting to see what was going to happen next. Getting up cautiously, we continued following the tracks. The change was amazing. Ten minutes before, we were walking with our heads down, eyes fixed to the ground, Rifles over our shoulders completely switched off as we fought our way through the undergrowth. Now our heads were up, our eyes as big as saucers as we darted from one clump of bushes to the next. Our weapons were held firmly, ready to return fire. Crack, crack! Two more shots streaked over our heads. This time we did not take cover. Instead we broke out into a lurching, lumbering run. The noise was horrendous. Gas stoves clanging against gas cylinders. Rifle barrels hitting magazines. Tripping and falling. We must have sounded like a Russian T-54 battle tank. (laughs) Glancing towards the path after one fall, I noticed that Captain Reed Daly was now carrying the briefcase stuck out in front of his webbing. This was the beginning of a long, hot, hard day. Freelamo was now warming to their new game. After letting us advance a few hundred meters, they would fire a couple of shots at us, and we would break into a lumbering run and attempt to get close enough to shoot, or at least see whom we were dealing with. I can safely say we failed miserably in both. About six hours later, exhausted, bleeding from countless bruises and cuts, Mopani flies driving me crazy, I still had not fired a shot. It did not go well. No, that... (laughs) Bit of a shit show. Now, you you mentioned Ron Reed Daly there, Uncle Ron. That was one of those commanders early on in AJ's career that he basically would go through his entire career serving under. In fact, following him basically into the Slew Scouts and then eventually into Transkai later on, he was a veteran of the 
uh, Milan emergency, educated by the British in how to fight a war. He, you know, cut his teeth in, in Malaya with the British as part of the Southern Rhodesian contingent that went over there to help the British more or less suppress a communist insurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very hearts and minds kind of war where and there was a lot of forced relocation now that that is basically the hallmark of why the british were successful and a lot of the same tactics would attempt to be employed so so like the psyops tactics anyways with forced relocations and the protected villages schemes so all that kind of stuff and how the rhodesians would conduct the war came out of malaya yeah, the leadership of Gerald Templar in Malaya was a major key to victory. He really understood how to fight counterinsurgency. Yes. Now, there are problems with that. As we've talked to Chris Cox about it, like they kind of the Rhodesians in, in their Bush score tried to model it a little bit too closely off. Yes. The, Not the understanding stuff. the differences between Africa and Southeast Asia. Yeah, like because not all the communists were in, like, in Malaya, the communists were in, all in the country. There were hundreds of thousands of them, right? And they all happened to be in one ethnic group that, well, not all of them, but, like, a good Most of them Chinese. were in the Han Chinese group. Yes. And what Gerald... They weren't native... Um, yeah, native Malay. Malay. And what... what uh, Gerald Templar did was he called this draining the sea, the sharks swimming. He'd basically take the Han Chinese uh, settlers and basically forcibly relocate them into the cities exactly. am- among the Ma- Malay so they couldn't sort of self-segregate and then organize, basically. They were kind of stuck in the stuck there amongst the British and where they could, an eye could be kept on them. And also where all of them got jobs, like yeah, he did a good job at yeah. sort of yeah, and he did a good job at um, improving the lives of people who would otherwise have become guerrillas, and ruthlessly suppressing guerrilla activity that did arise. He yes. was very good at the mixture of carrot and stick. Yes, so you have a lot of that in Rhodesia, but the main difference was these guys were leaving the country, mm-hmm. right? They they weren't being put into protected villages. Well. You know, a lot of people were. A lot of the black Africans in Rhodesia would be put into, in the in the Rhodesian context of the forced relocations, these protected villages. These villages that would be set up specifically for, that would be government protected, that would be maybe fenced off or have roving security, that the terrorists could not come in and intimidate people. But that wasn't every village. And again, the, the Turs, as they were called, would leave the country, get training, get armed, hit run hit run hit run they wouldn't be stuck in somewhere like in the jungle surrounded yeah. by the british and be eventually forced out into a city or something right they they, they haven't they had an you know an escape route uh where it was not really the case in during the malayan emergency mm-hmm. so to some extent they followed it too closely and they had issues you know that appeared i guess later on but early in this stage uh they Again, a lot of things were lost in translation. It was a very British war. So again, early in the war, it, a lot of things got lost in translation from that strategic level down to the tactical level. 
and it's kind of kind of crazy. Again, Ron Reed Daly during this raid. By the way, I want to make a correction from earlier. It's 1973, not 72. That I think he mentions this is the first time most of them have been in contact. He's been in the army now a few years. Decided to stick on after his national service. So it's 1973. He's decided to stick on a few years after his national service. He's there with now Captain Ron Reed Daly, who was formerly a sergeant major in Malaya, commissioned up from the ranks. He's now a captain, which is you know a, a company commander basically. In very British style, goes into this raid or this uh, this I guess cross border patrol into Mozambique, which happened because Mozambique at this point in the war was still a Rhodesian ally mm-hmm. under Portuguese control. And there were a lot of joint operations with the Portuguese. When he crossed the border into Portugal, he was actually carrying, as uh, AJ mentions, a black briefcase. And he's a pretty important figure in this book. He comes up a lot, but again, he carries a black black briefcase. His uniform is actually perfectly ironed. It is pressed. It is creased. It is very British. It almost reminds me of um, the gentleman... At Arden Bridge with the umbrella. Yeah, <laughs> he said if he was, he said there's a quote from the book. If he was going to get his arse shot off, he was going to look smart while it was happening. Exactly. Yeah. Very British. Yeah, Rob... that's that's just to give you again. It's a, it's an interesting an- anecdote, but it's to give you an idea of how how British the war was and its its conduct at the beginning. Now, the. African guerrillas at this stage were also very, very unsophisticated. They were just starting to receive training in arms. So the British, or sorry, the Rhodesians kind of got away with this at the early stages. But again, they were running into issues of like the troops did not have enough water in the field. They were running short shorts, which were ripping up their legs. That was like actually a a bit of an issue. Their, Their footwear and their gear was a little bit subpar and their dress standards were a little lax because, again, very colonial, but also very British. Yeah. Right? And those those two kind of collided in weird ways, and they didn't perform super well. Six hours, he's been shot at, and they've just been running around in Mozambique kind of confused. Mm-hmm. And by the end, he's just covered in, like, bug bites, basically. He's sunburnt to a crisp, dehydrated, exhausted... Probably has a bit of heat sickness. Probably a little bit. And uh, he has not seen the enemy, and he's still, he's been shot at, but he hadn't even fired a shot yet. And Ron Reed's still walking around with his briefcase, his black briefcase, which he, at one point, he actually holds out as like a shield when they're under fire. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, uh, he was a a very hard man. As as we know from, if you've listened to our podcast about... um, Dennis Krokop, his book, uh, Bush War in Rhodesia. Ron Reed was a very hard man. There's a, there's an incident here early on, a little earlier in, in this, in AJ's career where, again, this is just one of those short stories. Basically there, he's there with the RLI, which Ron Reed is currently, you know, still a captain in and they're doing mortar training standard on the range. This is how you shoot a, you know, operate a mortar as a team. These are your, you know, your loader, aimer or whatever I don't, I don't i've never worked in a mortar team i'm sorry mortar guys <laughs> i know you guys are very passionate about your work but i don't know too much about it but they're you know they're doing the mortar thing they're on the range 
something happens, something goes wrong. Buddy puts a round down the tube, and the round prematurely explodes. Shrapnel's everywhere. I believe there is a there is one Rhodesian Light Infantry soldier, a young trooper, another National Serviceman, a white conscript. He's killed outright. Mm-hmm. Two of them are horribly maimed, mangled, screaming, in agony. Everyone around them is in absolute shock. Medics show up. They clean up the mess. And within, I think, something like two hours, Ron Reed's out there calling range orders again. And they continue the exercise as though nothing happened. That's the type of man, and that's the type of training that they were getting early on. They were very... Very hard. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's another word you can even call yeah. for it. It's just, it's Ron, hard. Ron Reed was a hard man. Yeah. And that was the kind of training that these guys were getting. Now, did it didn't really translate into operational success at this point, but at the same time, the African guerrillas under the command of Mugabe and, and Nakoma, which were, well, those two gentlemen had now left the country and were kind of covertly commanding from Zambia and Tanzania and stuff. Um, they were now starting to mobilize, but they weren't all there yet either. So yeah. two pretty poorly organized, well, very poorly organized guerrilla group fighting a semi-organized army at this stage. Yes. Things change in 1974. A, a big, big, big thing happens. And that is the, well, the, the collapse of Portugal, right? Mm-hmm. The Carnation Revolution, which we've talked about before. Is that 74? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Bre- to put it very briefly, uh, long-time dictator of uh, Portugal, Antonio Salazar, he dies. dies. I don't know. I don't remember, actually, if he died in 74 or a year or two before. He died a year or two before. Yeah. yeah. And but basically, in this, uh, a group of more liberal... Uh, more modern army officers, because the the uh, Portuguese regime, the Estado Novo, was very conservative and traditional. Reformers, basically, in the army led a non-violent coup, mm-hmm. took over the government, and created a, a more democratic state. Yep. And in response, Portuguese pulled out, out of basically abandoned their colonial wars. The war was also hugely unpopular back home. Extremely a those, yeah, so. A lot of those men yeah. fighting and, and dying there in what was their their Vietnam Vietnam times 10 because it was over multiple countries. Yes. It was over Angola. It was over Mozambique, uh, Guinea. Yeah. And, uh, well, Guinea-Bissau. And I think there was another country, wasn't there? They were, yeah, yeah there, there was might like, have there was been. Like a, there was a, I'm trying to remember. Did I say Mozambique? I said Mozambique. You said Mozambique. Angola, Guinea-Bissau. Yeah, Mozamb- Mozambique and Angola was, were the two big country. ones. but There yeah. was another country, I think. But anyways, it's a big empire. Yeah. And I, I mean in, in every sense of the word, it was an empire. It was a colonial empire. And overnight, they're like, bye. And all of a sudden, all these countries that were pro-Rhodesia overnight became like totally enemy territory. Right? All these communist and, well, very African nationalist organizations and groups took power in these respective countries and well they, they got the message to Mugabe and Nakoma hey guys you guys are welcome here 
We got some guns, by the way. The Portuguese left us a lot of stuff. Yeah. FYI. Mm-hmm. And also, the Chinese and the Russians, the Soviet Union at this point, um, through their proxy programs of world domination and stuff, are, <laughs> they're starting to drop off a lot of AKs and a lot of RPGs and RPDs and stuff. So we got a lot of guns, we got a lot of tanks. Um, here you go. All yours. And the war rapidly changed for these young men. So in, in 1973, just before this happens, AJ is, like, he recalls, like, what living as an RLI soldier was like. When not in the field and not conducting patrols and trying to look for an enemy that was very poorly organized and took pot shots at you and ran off, when you weren't doing that, in garrison, you'd be going out for a morning run, and then you'd be left to stew in your juices. So after your basic training, of course, when you you know when you got to a regiment, you'd be doing your morning run, left to stew in your own juices, in the heat, in the misery of uh, <laughs> five day or five weeks, five weeks on doing this right, working, and and then eventually going out and patrolling in the bush and stuff. And when you got back to your base, it'd be two beers max. And a lot of guys ended up having to take uh, daga marijuana to help them sleep just because the, the heat and stuff and the stress and the situation was so bad. And they're fighting an enemy that was, well, kind of invisible at this point, right? They weren't as bold, so it was a lot of hit and run. As he mentions with that one contact, Bush bashing for six hours to not find the enemy. It's a pretty stressful time, and when they get back into a big city in Rhodesia, like Salisbury or Bulawayo, they cause chaos. They get absolutely shit faced, drunk, fight people, <laughs> solicit the the services of women of the evening, so to speak, and then go right back in the bush. Ten days on, five or sorry, ten days off, five weeks on. Ten days off, five weeks on. And it went from that existence to all of a sudden, like, damn, like, we are now surrounded. War is not the front door anymore, it's in the backyard. Exactly. So, he makes a decision there in 1975 to join the newly formed Salute Scouts. Now, Dennis Crocomp is the first uh, group that goes through the selection. I think he's kind of like a guinea pig program, so... We, I think we do talk about it in, that, in the in the podcast we did with Dennis Crocomp's book, Bush War. We, we, we briefly brought up, but we'll talk about it in more detail here. Cause it's, For a good reason. Because it's quite one of the most memorable parts of the book. For sure. Yeah. Because Crocomp's, again, he's a, he's a guinea pig program, so the selection course is not as difficult. They start really getting into the stuff that that Salute Scout selection course is, is famous for by the time um, AJ's in. And they, they you know, famously start doing stuff like the, the limited sleep, the <laughs> limited food, and, well, the absolute torture that, uh, that the course became. By the way, we are skipping huge sections of this book. And we will be skipping huge sections of the book throughout this podcast. So, get the book. Yeah. 
And it's still it, available it, on Amazon as of right now, which is 13 July, 2021. So. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be taken off anytime soon. Oh, it might be because um, it's uh, it might be out of print soon, actually. So if you oh. listen to this podcast, oh, okay. you, might, you might actually want to get this. Yes, yeah, no, Bush 4. And it's it's not very expensive, guys. Yeah, it's it's a, short book, and the money goes to our good friend A.J. Ballum, yes. so. But, so anyways, back to, back to selection, like, we almost don't want to reveal too much, but like it, it, it is a hell of a process. So he goes in with 108 men total. And interesting, he mentions actually the demographics. Only 15 of them are white. Yeah. 15 of them are white. The rest are actually volunteers from the Rhodesian African Rifles, which is a, well, the non-commissioned members were all African. They're shown on our Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, great white supremacists. Am I, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it starts off with them being dropped off off a bus. He uses the word debus. Now, I don't know if that means, like, they get off a truck or whatever. There's an actual bus. But they get there. They get dropped off by some vehicle there. And there's a lot of rumors because they're not... The unit was very secretive and, and stayed secretive throughout most of the war. People knew about it. They knew that this unit is, like, the best. They're doing amazing work. But the specifics of the unit remain classified until after the war. Because, again, it was, a, it was a special forces unit. You could equate it to with, like, America's Delta Force, you know, Canadian uh, JTF-2 or SAS in the United Kingdom, right? A special Air Service. Like, these guys were top of the line. And funny, I mentioned SAS. They poached guys. They poached the best people from the special Air Service. Mm-hmm. I think Ron Reed was a, was a, back in Malaya, was a special Air Service guy himself. Mm-hmm. So they're poaching, like, the best people. And Ron Reed Daly was the officer commanding of this unit at the very beginning and until the very end. But they, by 1975, they've really started, at this point, 1975 anyways, they've really started developing the, the trickier bits of this course. And, and a lot of them are, are mental games. So again, they're, they're dropped off in this location. There's a lot of rumor. There's a lot of conjecture, like, what this course is going to be. No one really tells them. They hear, like, oh, it's going to be terrible, and they're going to do this, this, and that to you. And some of these guys that are on this course, like, they bring everything. They bring an entire barrack box full of gear and webbing and backpacks and food because they, they, like, they've been told, like, you won't be fed and all this stuff. So the guys, like, bring all the food they can. And some people, like AJ and, and his buddy that, that he doesn't identify him, but he is a buddy of his that does the course with him they don't bring a heck of a lot because they anticipate like, man, I don't, we don't know what we're going to need. It almost sounds like I have a horror movie, but out of, through the dust, as they, as all these men, 108 men are standing around, six dudes show up through the red African dust. They are in short shorts, t-shirts, wearing tennis shoes and bellies, and they're holding AK-47s, the non-conventional Chicom weapon of pretty much every guerrilla force around the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're bearded, they're hairy, they're terrifying, almost out of like a horror movie because they ain't, you know, the, the standard service rifle was the um, Rhodesian variant of the FNFL, right? Mm-hmm. And they were, they were there with their AKs, zero fucks. Yeah. And uh, they immediately said, "Okay, guys, here's some logs." 
we're going to walk to the you know training camp at Lake Kariba. 20 minutes in, he says most of the guys are, are done. So they make these guys carry these huge, like, gigantic logs, you know, log PT for those people that have been in the military. You'll be quite familiar with um, how brutal the process that is, but a lot of these guys are carrying, they're carrying all their other kit with them, including, I think, service weapons and stuff, too. So they're carrying, like, their rucks, and some people have brought a lot of food. <laughs> well, those guys are the first to drop out. They drop out. They're done very, very quickly. Most of the dudes, he doesn't give a certain no, a specific number because he, he has no idea, right? He's just trying to survive it. But uh, it turns out that it's a 15-kilometer approximately march, death march, that turns into a death run <laughs> to the camp with, with logs, with all your gear. And just from that, within 20 minutes, most of the people are done. Most of the people are weeded out because they brought the wrong stuff. They came in with the wrong mindset. They thought, oh, this is just another army course. I'm going to learn how to be a tracker or something, or I'm going to learn how to be a, a paratrooper. And no, they get... This is a completely different animal. And by the time they're... Um, they're, they get to camp. They're all covered in Shawari buzzard bites and Mopani fly bites. They're all heat stroked, basically. He describes it. He's running in a sauna. That's that's when he actually yeah a uh, uh, steam bath. Dehydrated. People can't think. They get there and they're yelled at the entire time. They're abused and finally they get some food. They get a twenty four hour ration pack. Because at this point he's tuned in that this is like this is gonna be that kind of mental dam dam damningly mental course and all the the essence of the course is to like break you down mentally to the point where you're like, I'm done, bye. Right? And it's to find the type of person that's willing to be like, Okay, let's see what's next. Let's see what's next. Cause they, the, there's no course curriculum, there's no course outline their first introduction to their instructors is not like, hey, I'm Sergeant such and such from this unit. We're going to learn lesson number one, right? No, it's pick up these logs and go. And then you don't even know who they are. You don't know where you're going. You don't know how long it is. You just have to do it. So they're looking for the types of guys that can say what's next. And this becomes a prevalent theme in his career when he eventually op does uh, pseudo-ops later, which we'll, we'll get into in a moment. But they get, they get a camp and they get issued these 24-hour ration packs that have about three meals worth of food in there. Pretty decent calorie content. He's aware now. This is a mindfuck course. So he does a smart thing and he starts rationing his food, being very, very, very careful. Because for the next, I think it was like three days or four days, it was nothing. That was it. And they didn't tell them. Like they just, some people presumed because they were starving. They're so calorie starved after that. 15k ruck they just eat as much as they can they keep eating and then and then they go through more iterations of punishment and push-ups and log pt and runs and all this other fun stuff and they have no more food <laughs> to sustain themselves and those guys drop out at, at one point um and it just it almost becomes like a fever dream right yeah. it becomes like a fever dream where these guys are now they start lacking sleep because they let them AG's not even sure on specific hours, but it's like they weren't really sleeping. 
no. they're always doing stuff. They were all in kind of like a delirious, dreamlike state. Like, yeah. yeah the... Like, because the only part where he's like lucid is his first run into the camp and he gets food. And it's like the last lucid decision he makes. It's like, I have to ration this. And it's like the best decision he ever makes. Right? Because the next time he's lucid, he's in a bar drinking a beer at the end of the course. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm alive again. Like, that's that's the last time. And the rest just, he's, it's. So there's one point where, again, there's this craziness happening. And again, there's no specifics. I, I don't think anyone can even probably remember given that context. But there he does remember a por- portion of the course where they have to like build a raft and carry logs over Lake Kariba and yeah I remember like, that yeah. and, and it's just and they're confused and they all have heat stroke uh, and they're all starving and sleep deprived and then there's um, I think this was well fed instructors are yelling at them yeah well on the on the topic of well fed there's a moment where they had they hadn't eaten in about seventy two hours. And I think AJ mentions, like, by that point in the course, that 24-hour ration pack that they had given him, he was out of now. He was he had consumed it all, and he remembers, like, smelling in, like, in the morning or something. There's just, there's meat. There's meat. Glorious meat. He looks out. He comes out with the survivors of the course, who at this point look like hobos, starving hobos. And they come out. They're all unshaven. They're all messed up. And the instructors are just having like a braai in front of them, eating sandwiches, he remembers, and they're making steaks and grilling stuff. And they're like, hey guys, hey boys, okay, pick up the logs and get back to it this morning. What a beautiful day. And as the instructors are eating in front of them, they're being made to do all these grueling uh, you know, PT exercises. With, generally with logs, that, that tends to be like the main, logs are a big theme in this training program. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, the instructors eventually do feel bad for them. You have to feed people eventually or they will die. So the instructors, um, to mindfuck them further, decide that we're going to see if you guys are really hungry. And this is where the famous baboon comes in. Yes. They had killed a baboon earlier and basically left it out in the sun to rot for days and days and then finally they now i'm not going to read the whole thing because i think plenty of our listeners would throw up <laughs> but um oh this is so gross <laughs> i'm gonna try i'm gonna try i'm not somebody who's naturally squeamish but this is where are we gonna start where are we gonna start eh? um I think I will just read the last three little mini paragraphs. Sure. Okay. There was no need to try and skin the baboon. It was so rotten that the skin fell off in its own accord. Piece by piece, the rotten meat was placed into the pot of boiling water. As each piece was added, the maggots floated to the top until eventually the water was no longer visible, covered as it was by the thick layer of maggots. We had buried the guts so the foul smell of rotting meat was replaced with what I can only describe as beautiful, awesome, mouth-watering smell of the cooking baboon. An hour ago, I would have sworn on a Bible that there was no way I was going to eat the human-like baboon. Now I could not wait to get my share. Thus ended the first phase of our selection, with all of us quite happily eating 
rotten baboon and with all the trappings of so-called civilization discarded. Now, I've skipped over like four big paragraphs, which basically describe this baboon was more maggot than meat at this point. <laughs> And was like literally the most rotten, disgusting thing Again, you could have made. You didn't need to skin it because the skin had just fallen off when they. Uh, yeah. Apparently, they learned it is. The instructors told them it's safe to boil um, meat, but it's safe to eat rotten meat if you boil it and eat it immediately. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend trying that though yourself. Yeah, this is not dietary yes. advice. We're not dietitians. Yes, yeah. But that's a bad that's a bad idea. Yep. That's our recommendation as uh, non-professionals. Yep. But yeah, it's a pretty famous aspect of the course that they do eat a rotting baboon and it's a, it's a gut, it's a, you know, like everything else, it's a litmus test, like what kind of, mm-hmm. what are you willing to put up with? And by the way, none of these guys knew that, you know, day one that they're going to eat rotting baboon. So that's, that's phase one. It's a real gut check. Mm-hmm. Right? It starts off with that big mental mind fuck and then it, Ends with a, another big mental mind fuck. And it keeps going. It just keeps going. That's phase one, and then eventually they get into this, like, the second phase of training, which is a lot more tactics, and they learn tracking, and they learned um, bushcraft and how to survive, escape and evasion. A lot of Malaya lessons, a lot of, uh, well, a lot of local African knowledge, botany, uh, identifying tracks, identifying spore, identifying spore traps, tracking formations, these these fundamental things that actually allow the Salus Scouts when they start operating to become well one of the most legendary units of the Bush War, especially when they, they start operating in those small team um, pseudo-operations where they, they basically, imp- and I use the word pseudo-operations, uh, oper- to describe ops where they basically impersonate the terrorists or they they terrorize the terrorists, so to speak, right? Using the, the same tactics on their enemy, giving them a taste of their own medicine and doing so far more effectively than Zanla or Zipra could ever dream up. So there's a lot of tactical training, but it's still a lot of abuse verbally from the instructors, a lot of log punishment PT and uh, it culminates in a 100 kilometer march in the driest hottest countryside in Rhodesia along Lake Kariba 100 kilometer march at this point uh, well AJ describes his group as looking like survivors of a gulag or maybe casualties of a gulag at this point the living dead They've all lost weight. They're all messed up. They're all carrying injuries. But AJ's knees are actually complete. Like his legs, I think, actually. Like his, all his legs were like swelling up. But he was still game to do the 100K march. But it was determined that it was actually not a good idea medically. And because he had already passed all these fuck fuck tests at this point, and they had already gotten him a lot of tactical training, uh, AJ was given a unique kind of get-out-of-jail-free card from the 100K march, which he always felt guilty about. He felt guilty at the time for... Um, he mentions he felt guilty like he didn't want to take that get-out-of-jail-free card because all the other guys had to do it, but it was just like, dude, you've gone through enough. This is this is just a, like, uh, you know... One final fuck you. <laughs> one final fuck you, but we fucked you enough. Right? Yeah. 
that same night, he passed the course, got his beret, got his famous Osprey uh, cap badge, the brown beret, which very, very few men in the world are, have ever been entitled to wear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, now he, he's a loose scout operator. Next thing you know, he was lucid again drinking a beer. <laughs> which was all was a, a bad a, dream. Yeah, it was all <laughs> a bad dream. The best beer he ever had. And he, uh, he starts right away because of the knees of the Bush War and the Portuguese collapse and the intensification of the Bush War. He goes operational right away as a Sioux operator. And it sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's not a fun, not a fun time. Yeah, so yeah, AJ uh, Bellum goes on, sorry, Ballum. Is it Ballum or Bellum? We'll have to ask him because we do hope to interview him. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hey, uh, AJ. Uh, AJ goes on many of the sort of famous operations of the Bush War. Thra- In addition to not so famous one, like he operates oftentimes as uh, almost like a lone lone wolf, maybe mm-hmm. with one or two other guys, the Tame Terrors specifically. So dudes that were formerly. African Nationals guerrillas was Anler Zipra that had defected to the Rhodesian side either because they were captured or they were bribed or whatever and they or like, just right. got sick of it <laughs> or they just got sick of the other side and losing all the time yeah so they you know they, they jumped ship they weren't the most trustworthy guys sometimes as we you know we discussed with the Crow Comp book because Crow Comp at, at some points is very sketched out about them yeah uh, but you know that being said AJ works with these guys and it's just it's absolute misery because he's covered in, in cam cream during a lot of the smaller ops to make himself look like a black man because it's it is Africa mm-hmm. and the white man in Africa in, is going to be conspicuous. Yeah, to yeah. say the least. And he's often op- well almost always operating externally. He's no longer in the country. He is now back in the Mozambique. And unlike 1973 when he's there for like the first time and he's under fire as a young RLI soldier. He is no longer allowed to be there. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. have friends. He doesn't have a base full of Portuguese soldiers to like drink with afterwards. No, he's not allowed to be there. And for Limo has armored vehicles. So they're starting to get like Russian T fifty five tanks and stuff. So like he's like, okay, can't get caught. Alright? And he does a lot of these operations alone. A lot of like I, I get the vibes. We're not going to go through all of them because there's, there's a lot of short stories that go over it. Um, the, the, the main kind of takeaway theme is that a lot of them are very, very fruitless. Mm-hmm. These long-range recon missions, these aren't Rambo gunfights. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of people have said about Ron Reed, and this is something that I think Ron Reed said himself in an interview, is like he doesn't want Rambos in the Sleuth Scouts. Mm-hmm. That's not what these guys were doing. They were doing incredible things that push the limits of human endurance oftentimes just to collect information to collect um, intelligence about the enemy about enemy movements and then the ROI and the Air Force would do the rest right they'd be the hammer these guys would facilitate everything by pushing human endurance to its absolute limits and he's out there, um, there there's times where he's out in short shorts Right, there's times he's out in jeans. Uh, he's wearing like all kinds of shit. He's not wearing anything conventional, right? He's wearing kind of like 
Chicom stuff and whatever a, a terrorist that opposed Rhodesia would wear. Again, to make himself not look, you know, conspicuous. And uh, because it's not standard, like, military issue stuff, it's not Rhodesian breaststroke, you know, it's nothing like that. It's, it's, it's crap. It's like shabby clothes, basically, and maybe shorts. Uh, he's wrecking his body physically on every op, on every, you know, small op he goes on. He goes out many, many times over many, many years. Uh, you say he's all involved in the big the big ops as well, right? Yeah. He, Thrasher, Repulse, Eland, I believe. Yeah, Eland very famously where uh, well, a very small number of Salute Scouts tricked a lot of terrorists and killed about a thousand of them. Uh, Lapai, Tay-Tay? Tay-Tay? At least pronounce it. Yes, uh, yeah, Tata, I think. Tata, is, Tata, it, Tata, Tata, Tata province, province. Yeah, where they went in and buried landmines, and then a few days later realized, learned that uh, local Frelimo commander and his boys yes. had been basically blown sky high by them. And, and uh, Frelimo is the um, Mozambique communist group at this yes. point. They're taking control of the government after Portuguese left. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, like, we're not going to read every... Uh, individual op, but there's there's a mention off Thrasher where he gets engaged in a firefight. Well, he actually gets. It's not so much a uh, a fire <laughs> fight as it is a fist fight, but. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. I'm thinking of Mapai. Yeah, Mapai's the the, fire, the big firefight. But yeah, it's a it's a it's yeah. a scuffle. They go in to basically capture a local guerrilla leader. How many Pre of them are there? There's. There's a mention. Um, it's, it's a, this is now a larger group. This is no longer a pseudo op, right? No, I think this is. Is this, is this still a pseudo op? Yeah. Where it's like, because again, a pseudo op was like two, three guys, and famously, like Chris Schillenberg, who I don't think he's mentioned in this book. But uh, he's mentioned in Procom's book. He he goes in alone, oftentimes. Mm -hmm. He's quite quite famous for doing that. And same with um, Edward Pirangondo, who's a who's a black Scout yeah. operator. So were there were eight of them yep. of him, and basically this guy was an ex boxing champion, the okay. the, the black tear leader, and was like six foot six or something. Okay. And basically, when he realized that they were trying to kidnap them, a fight broke out, and they actually basically left. They, this guy was like knocked on. They finally, the, the big guy was knocked unconscious, and they left him there because they were like, "We can't carry this man. He's too big." And he'd like he literally beaten the stuffing out of all of them. They were like injured. Everyone was bleeding, and they were just like, "We're we're getting out of here." These are very diverse sets of missions because this is one type of mission. And then there's going to be other types of missions we'll talk about. Um, but yes, yeah, some of them were snatch missions like this, where they would go in and they wouldn't necessarily be armed and they've got to cap capture this guy alive. They'd probably be armed, right? But I think they had like guns. knives and small, maybe yeah. some small arms. Yeah. All, all contextual based off the needs of the mission. Mm -hmm. And of course, his face was all blacked up with what was called Black is Beautiful Cream. Mm -hmm. Basically some nasty chemical concussion from South Africa that was supposed to work but didn't really work all the time. So you had to keep... It apparently smelled like shit and you had to keep applying it. People just use burnt charcoal now. So that... Uh, the, the, this fight with the, the boxer <laughs> happens in an off-thrasher. And there's there's very different 
operations that happen. As I mentioned, there's these kind of long-range recon missions, there's snatch missions, there's quite a few where they try to either snatch or interrogate um, a local like youth leader called Majubas, right? He mentions these uh, individuals being targets at times, and sometimes they're successful. More often than not, they're not super successful. But again, they're still always pushing the limits of human endurance. And then you have these kind of set-piece battles sometimes, which do happen. Notably, uh, at Mapai, when they, they raid a Ferlimo compound, which was actually pretty well entrenched, and um, Warren Officer Yang Nell, a, a good friend of his in the Salute Scouts, is killed in action. Uh, and initially, I think they had actually thought that his corpse... After, after he had been killed, because he had been, you know, blacked and beautiful, was um, a terrorist. And it was just, it, it, it's, it's a pretty heart-rendering, it's, it's a pretty heart-wrenching account. We're, we're not going to read that specific one. I've, I've, I've you know, po I post about it every year on the anniversary of, uh, of when that happened. I think it's in, in June. When that raid happened, 1976, in the Mozambique, and then again, that's always intermixed with these small unit, long range missions, snatch missions, and occasionally these big set piece battles and raids. Most famously was Op Eland, or the raid at Nyadzona, right into Mozambique. They went right up to the enemy. And they, uh, well, they annihilated them. And, and to some, it's known as the Night Zona Massacre, which I don't think is, is apt, because it was, a, it was a terrorist training camp, basically, in Mozambique. All the troops and individuals there were under arms. Later, it was claimed by um, all the African nationalists that this was like a refugee camp that they attacked. And, and basically what they did was they had taken some Ferlimo vehicles, and some Rhodesian vehicles that they just mocked up to look like Ferlimo vehicles, because Ferlimo had Soviet armored. And they Soviet armor, sorry. And they rolled in with big flags, hawking their horns, and they got let in right through the front gate. And inside were mounted anti-aircraft guns and PPMGs hidden away, and a bunch of uh Black is beautiful, Salute Scout operators. The main guy at the, at the front of the convoy of these vehicles was a former Ferlimo terrorist, so he knew all the passwords, all the sayings, and how to get these guys' trust. They went in and they thought that this convoy must have been some sort of uh, victorious, you know, column rolling back from Rhodesia after killing hundreds of Rhodesians or whatever. And, they thought this was great news, and all the troops and all the, uh, the the men and women there under arms were all being trained to be guerrillas. Some of them were trained guerrillas. All went around and started cheering these vehicles, and as they did, the Rhodesians just opened up on them. And it, it became one of the most lopsided, uh, <laughs> with only a few Rhodesians wounded, mostly friendly fire. Because they were so close, they annihilated in the ballpark estimated thousand uh, twenty eight was the was the death count 
among the terrorists that day, and Ferlimo forces might have suffered even many more hundreds of casualties that we don't know about, that there's just no records for. So, Opulent, and the AJ writes about it in pretty vivid detail. My body went cold. The hair on the back of my neck stood up, as standing on the back of the Unimog, with my mortars deployed below me. I watched in amazement and fear as the column, an extended line a mere twenty meters to my front and facing the parade ground, was swamped by a tide of black bodies, with four or five thousand cheering Xanala recruits running forward to greet them. Yong, long yellow flames shot from the barrels, vehicles shuddering under the recoil as the entire column opened fire. Faces disintegrated, bones shattered, meat shredded, blood boiled, skin burned. I watched, fascinated by the horror unfolding before my eyes. Bullets smashed in the vehicle I was standing on, bringing me back to earth and giving me a frightening reminder of where I was. Then silence. Awesome. Eerie in its completeness. Still lying between the two mortars, I cautiously lifted my head and looked about. Where thirty seconds ago had stood a large, cheering crowd of terrorists, there was only emptiness and silence. The column vehicles were still in extended line facing the parade ground, the occupants frozen, staring in disbelief at the death and destruction they had wreaked. A lot of people, I think, when they think of war and battle think and victories, think of, you know, the charge coming over the hill and the, the glory of it all and... No, victory can look like this. Victory can be a, yeah. a very, a very grim, very sneaky, very, arguably necessary, but very wow. brutal. Yeah, yeah, and we we know that this event has been pretty well researched because it, it it was again it's so lopsided. I think four slew scouts were wounded. It, it was catastrophic to the terrorists, their under arms. Um, being trained by Ferlimo. I think there was ammo. Uh, and again, they were. They said like this was like a refugee camp and stuff, and because they were pretty pissed off, they just lost about a thousand fighters, in it in about five minutes or ten minutes or whatever. And it's just, it's gnarly, man. They, they, they silence, and a crowd of a that was a crowd of a thousand people. Silence. And many more hundreds of Furlimo that we probably don't know about. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I, I see a lot of like memes and stupid shit about Opulent. Because it was one of the times where the Rhodesians really proved their mettle and showed that they really had the upper hand through most of the war. Despite how things were going on earlier in the war, they had really, by 1976, got gotten the upper hand but it wasn't pretty. A war is never pretty. No, and then especially when you have to do basically like a Trojan horse op, which is which disintegrates people in, in front of your eyes. And, yeah. And and among them, like we know for a fact, because again, as I said, this event is well researched. There were children under arms there because yeah. uh, there were child soldiers in the crowd. There were women. Yeah. There were women under yeah. in the crowd. All of them gorillas, but there were there were, there were yeah. I know, like oh no, like. You know, they killed civilians. No, they were all under arms. Like, that's well-researched, including um, people that 
are, well, I think they are still currently in the government of Zimbabwe and the official histories of the Zimbabwean government and, and people in the government and, and, and cabinet of Robert Mugabe, people that are still working in Zimbabwe right now, people that were at that camp have all said, like, we were under arms. We were all training to go over the border, kill civilians, cut people's lips off, um, burn people, rape, pillage, cause chaos, and then come back. Right? There was nothing pretty about it. There was nothing pretty about it. And, uh, yeah, no, I don't think it's proper to really celebrate it, per se, because, again, like, it's... There was a... One of the black operators, Ronnie Malambo, who actually served in the Zimbabwean National Army, he stuck around afterwards. I think he's still alive to this day. He grew up in a village with somebody that, uh, well, I think was pretty badly mangled by this event. He was there. He was in the vehicles. He was pulling the triggers. But in front of him was a, was a screaming little girl who was a, who was a child underaged from his village that he recognized in the very gory mess that was this crowd of people um, to somebody that he recognized so it, it was record you know it was recorded in, in the Rhodesian newspapers at the time as a great victory for but for the men on the ground it was um, well AJ says a, well. a dark deed yeah, yeah. possibly possibly a necessary one but a dark deed yeah Nonetheless. But it was showing kind of where this war was going. Mm -hmm. Because after that, it actually didn't really make that big of a difference to Mugabe and Nakano. They kept up their war. They shot down airliners, two Rhodesian airliners in total. One of them had crash-landed, had a bunch of survivors, and the um, zipper troops showed up. Well, troops, we could barely call them that. They were pretty sick, twisted individuals started bayoneting people, including a pregnant woman. Uh, and they were survivors of a plane crash, mind you. And they did this to basically hide evidence that they had started bayoneting. So they bayoneted somebody and they're like, okay, let's just bayonet them all. And there were very few survivors from that incident. And uh, the Rhodesian Padre giving a sermon afterwards to, you know, memorialize the, the deceased in this time period, uh, said that it, the, from the world they had heard a deafening silence. And that later became the title of a John Edmonds song yes. about about uh, the, this, well, event this, this, this event and the world reaction to it, yeah. which was, was nothing. This this is that course in the war. This is that stage in the war where not only is it starting to pick up, it's it's getting quite quite nasty on on both sides. And um, oh, uh, AJ's. AJ's in on like he's he's in he's in the thick of it he's really really in the thick of it and after a few more and after a few more years of operating constantly with a constant operational tempo going between these small pseudo ops to larger external ops and as the war progresses even bigger pseudo ops and bigger raids and then bigger set-piece battles by the end of the war when the Rhodesian government translates to the Zimbabwe Rhodesia government. It all comes to an end. And uh, AJ sees the writing on the wall. There's no place for a white Sulu scout in the new 
in Zimbabwe. From from this point on, we're not really going to read from the book, but there's a feeling of like hopelessness and what was this all for? Mm. What was all this chaos and destruction for? And um, which I think is very natural for anyone who's on the I guess losing side yeah. of a war. And with I guess kind of a decision that's made almost on autopilot. He just follows his old boss, Ron Reed Daly, the former colonel of the. Salu Scouts, who at, at this point had huge issues with the Rhodesian High Command, particularly one of his former colleagues, General Peter Walls, who actually ended up staying behind in Rhodesia for a few years. Uh, he had huge disagreements with the chain of command. He kind of wanted to do things his, his way, or it was the highway, and he was told, well, in the New Zimbabwe, you're not welcome. So he, he left, and he went to South Africa, where he found employment at the behest of the fledgling and new, relatively new Transkei government, which had formed in the 1970s through the South African Bantu stand uh, scheme, which was basically to create these Bantu-dominated countries, which are like puppet yeah. micro-states within South Africa. Yeah, it was basically an attempt by the South African apartheid government to from what I understand, build these like sort of in, in, in theory and to some extent in practice self-governing black states, but they were ultimately the South African government had control over them. Yeah. Yeah. So it was an attempt to sort of say, look, we're giving black autonomy without, without sort of sacrificing their own government, I guess. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a bit of a front there were South African, white, white Afrikaner paymasters and stuff in suits that showed up and paid the bills and told them this is how you're going to conduct things and so, some, you know, so forth. And But you are not South African. You were a trans guy, trans guy special forces. Mm-hmm. So it was a very gray op, so to speak. And at this point, um, AJ records that there's a bit of a mood shift in, in Ron Reed. He's a... He had been a little callous in the past, but was always, I guess, restrained by the, I guess, the ethics of the Rhodesian military system. And, and at this point, he was just a, he had come to the conclusion that he was, uh, he was a mercenary, more or less, for a government that didn't really care about him. He was an expendable mercenary, and that's kind of how he treated his subordinates. That's, that's a vibe I got from kind of this time frame. And he also serves, interestingly, with uh, Bob McKenzie, the American who was a veteran of the Rhodesian uh, Sea Squadron Special Air Service and had previously served in Vietnam where he was actually wounded. And uh, he's there basically running a selection course for the newly formed Trans-Sky Special Forces. Which were supposed to be like an independent special forces, but again, they really just answered to South Africa. So yeah, and one of these now Transkei is that the same as Lizet, uh, Lizetho, Lizotho, or not? No. Okay. No, no, that was another. That was like one of those Bantu stands. It was like Siskai, yes. Transkei, Lesotho, and uh, mm-hmm. Lof- yes. or whatever. Yes. I can't, I can't pronounce it. It's like a. It's like a thirty-letter word. Because <laughs> Balam's in a few of these. Because yeah, yeah, he's he's around. Yeah, he gets around. And 
Uh, in Lesotho, well, he, he he's involved in like a coup in in Cisco. Yes, it, it's very confusing, honestly. The politics, yeah, written so, by there the were end quite of quite a few Bantu stands, and they existed for just a short period of time. There's not a lot of well, histories on them. This it, is actually one of those. This book is actually like the, the short stories in there are, is one of the few existing histories yeah. of that time period. Well, and it's very because I mean, Balam appears to be training guerrillas to overthrow the governments of these Bantu stands, and I can never tell like, on behalf of whom, like on behalf of the yeah, South African government, know, on behalf of yeah, the well, like there's, there's a new revolutionary where, government. Like yeah, it exactly. There's there's moments where like there's guys in suits paying them to like overthrow the government, but they're like the same like government officials that they're working it's weird like, yeah. it's like mysterious dudes in suits show up and pates go like hey you need to have a coup d'etat now they're like oh never mind sorry like you know you gotta train these guys and it's just it's it's a bit of a shit show and um that's you know Balam's not super happy in this environment but thank you guys stick around sorry I'll, I'll back up I, I mispronounced again but AJ's not super happy in this environment but he still, he still does the job. It ain't Rhodesia though. Yeah, he it ain't his homeland, and it's very confusing, right? He makes no um, excuses for how confusing and how much of a shit show it was. Uh, apparently, there's one where he's in Lazetho, yep. working in brutal winter conditions earlier, but. They do a raid or something, and they get basically told by literally all of their paymasters and bosses that they've caused an international incident. And I'm going to quote here, I was confused. What did they think sending an armed group or two of so-called freedom fighters into an innocent neighbor's territory was? Offering a helping hand, maybe? Of course it was an international incident. What was the matter with them? But I appeared I was missing the point. Anyway, they apparently blew up a bunch of trucks. Yeah, it's... And he's, it, like, little... It's He's no longer fighting for, like, a, you know, a Rhodesian, the Rhodesian myth anymore. Yeah, the Rhodesian... He's not fighting for a nation-state or he's even... He's fighting for this very confusing employer that he's not even sure... Well, it's... He's what he's there because Ron Reed's there. Yes. And in, in Siskai, he runs a selection course where he actually repeats the thing with the baboon for his own, but it's with a dead porcupine. Oh, he's so nice. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. Remind me. Remind me never to uh, get a meal from AJ Palm. <laughs> uh, so. And they they have um, again. The, you mentioned the coup in Siskai. They, as they're going up to the presidential palace, they basically get like betrayed and ambushed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And at that point, from yeah, it it's all very confusing. But like AJ Ballum and Ronry Daly basically say, "Fuck this, we're leaving." <laughs> And the book kind of ends there. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But <laughs> so, these are ones of... That, that story is one of many. Yes. And AJ has another book that we're, we're going to go through eventually, but um, these this is just that first book. Again, there's no there's no direct or linear narrative to it because it's a bunch of short stories. That's where, mm-hmm. it, you know, that's kind of like the last story. Yes. And it, it takes him through basically all, his whole career. And yeah. there's more. There's more stories he has... In a, a bit of a shorter book for the memoirs of the Bush War operator, which we, we will cover. Mm-hmm. But again, that's a much shorter. Uh, but if you're looking for those kinds of stories and what the conditions were really like and what the emotions were like and the difficulties, the local difficulties, mm-hmm. 
this is your book. Don't expect going into it to find a to find Krokov's book where it's a super long narrative about his yeah. his upbringing from the time he's a toddler till the time you know till till like the end of his military career. Yeah, till the end of his military career. This is almost like a bunch of after action reports from ops mm-hmm. with also the added um, explanations of the emotions at, at the time that were going through his head. It's a really, really good introduction to the course of the Rhodesian Bush War in that way. But don't go into this expecting that it's going to be raw, raw Rhodesian mythos, short shorts, and slot and such and such badasses. No. You will not find that in this book. You will find 19, 20, 21-year-old A.J. Bellum in the bush, scared shitless, oftentimes covered in bug bites, sunburnt, heat stroke, dehydrated, half dead, pushing things to the limits of human endurance. And those are the stories you're going to get. So this book is perfect if you're looking for an introduction to the Rhodesian Bush War, course of the war emotions. And again, it was my introduction. So mm-hmm. it's cool to, it's cool to look over it. And uh, you, the reason we didn't read too, too many experts, especially the South African thing is because it's kind of confusing. It's not one narrative, right? Too. So he, he's yeah. working for different people at different times as basically a, a mercenary. Even though he's officially in the Transkei Special Forces, it's a bit of a shit show. I, I think the confusion of the last sort of third of the book reflects well. I, I'm not criticizing Balam's writing here. That's not his fault. No, yeah, it's no, it's not. It's a confusing situation. He's not sure what's going on. Yes, just, it, and it reflects perfectly the absolute, I think, insanity that a lot of this, you know, end of and, Rhodesia, yeah. end of South, end of uh, apartheid show. in South Africa, like just the. The sort of general like yeah. decolonial decolonizing shit show that just happened yeah, everywhere. Yeah, you can read the grand the historical points. narratives of it, but this is like what it looked like on the ground, and it yeah. was we're not sure what's going on. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was um, that was kind of my 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 takeaway from that from that whole book. It, it's and, a bit like yeah. sorry, one more point. It's a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been a big fan of the the Tintin books, and there's one where Tintin is in a firing squad in a Latin American country. Yep. And basically there's a guy who comes in and says, Comrades, the revolution has triumphed. The general's fled. The tired is on the run. We're all going to swear allegiance to the new guy. And it's just, then they do that. And like 10 minutes later, the guy says, no, 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 no. The new guy was deposed. The old guy's back in power. They swear allegiance to the... And then the yeah, rebels uh, take yeah, over for treat. Yeah. And it's just like never ending shit show, right? Yeah. So that's... um. That was the war by the end. Yeah. The war he fought anyway, so. Yeah. But they are amazing stories, and I think they deserve to be read. Uh, they're not, again, they're not raw, raw. And, you know, I, I haven't talked to AJ a few times. It's it's a lot of no bullshit, right? So it's, it's a lot of no bullshit, and, um, yeah, he's a cool dude. So hopefully we can get to interview him in, in person soon. Yeah, no, we've I would very much look forward to of, it. We probably fucked up. Tell like kind of retelling this that we'd have to hear it from him because he's got he's got a lot of perspective and um, yeah, he's a he's a no bullshit kind of guy and if you want a no bullshit kind of book about the no bars hold stories of the Rhodesian Bush War don't go and expect a full on narrative but stories of the Bush War this is uh, this is your book especially if you're looking for an introduction to it because it's mm-hmm. relatively short straightforward 
and gets right into it. So it's it's a hell of a book. So we'll, we'll, we'll I guess we'll end this this your podcast with a little reading from um, uh, I guess the forward of the book, right? Mm-hmm. Just uh, I guess a plug for the book. <laughs> this is right at the very beginning, and um, this is this is AJ. Anyone living in Rhodesia during the 1960s and 1970s would have had a father, husband, brother, or son called up in the defense of the war-torn, landlocked little country. A few of these brave men would have been members of the elite and secretive unit that struck terror into the hearts of the Zanla and Zipra guerrillas infiltrating the country at the time, the Cello Scouts. These men were highly trained and disciplined, with skills to rival the SAS, Navy SEALs, and the U.S. Marines, Although their dress and appearance were wildly unconventional. Civilian clothing with blackened hairy faces to resemble the very people they were fighting against. Twice decorated with the member of the Legion of Merit and the Military Forces Commendation, Andrew Ballam was a member of the Rhodesian Light Infantry and later the Cello Scouts for a period spanning 12 years. This is honest and insightful account of his time as a pseudo-operator. His story is brutally truthful, frightening, sometimes humorous, and often sad. In later years after Rhodesia became Zimbabwe, he was involved with a number of other former settler scouts in the attempted coups in the Siske, a South African homeland, and Lesotho, an independent nation whose only crimes were supporting the African National Congress, training terrorists, or as they preferred to be called, liberation armies, to conduct a war of terror on innocent civilians was the very thing he had spent the last ten years in Rhodesia fighting against. This is the true untold story. These failed attempts at government, governmental overthrows. Total shit show. Yeah, a bit of a yeah. Bit of a sour note on his military career, but that's where it ends. And, mm-hmm. uh, but so, anyways, um, that y'all gotta read the book because it's 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 pretty good. Yeah, and as as we've mentioned, I think it is one of the only things in print where we're talking about these sort of very confused coups and yeah. the sort of South African Bantu stands. That's right, because um, a lot of guys that were Salute Scouts actually ended up just joining conventional like parabats in South Africa, or they just left. They just went home to the UK, or yeah. they went to Australia, or they, if they're American, they went back to America. Right? Mm-hmm. If they're RLI guys, they might have gone to South Africa. They might have joined the you know three two battalion or just some regiment. Not that many of them went to these Bantu stands. Mm-hmm. Well, they're tiny countries. Tiny yeah. micro states and yeah. weird stuff going on. Yeah, there. and the whole point was there wasn't supposed to be any white people there, right? Yeah. So <laughs> At least it, not many of them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a bit of a bloody disaster to, to yeah. gently, and um, it's a, it's a pretty interesting account of those times because you know those aren't read about because they aren't very glorious. No, they're not. They might they remind me more of. Uh, Things like, you know, the pig war and the soccer war and yeah, kind of yeah. the meme military conflicts. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, people, like, innocent people got killed. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Poorly waged. So, yeah, that's uh, that's our that's our take on Bush War Opera. We hope we can, we can chat with AJ one day in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what, you, what, other than that, what, what else do you think? You have any other thoughts? Uh... No, I mean, we're, it's... We're like midnight, by the way. Yeah, I mean, this is... Go. Yeah, in case, if you're wondering why awesome, we're... It's a wicked book, though, but we are recording this at midnight. Yes, yeah, no, it's it's a very good book. I mean, I read uh, Fire Force verse, first, uh, and so I, I would say that would be the book I'd recommend people to start with, Rhodesian Bush War, but this close second. Okay. 
very close. I, second. I'd go the other way around because yeah, I know. But this again, this is more of a this is more talking about the ops, which is what people are more familiar with. And then you can really go into the political history because there's a lot of weeds there. To, to yeah, but I found Fire Force was a good, like, and, and again, just it was a good uh, narrative of a yeah, man going yeah. through the War. More men experienced the Fire Force War than the yeah. pseudo war. Yeah, no, this, this I'd say, though, is a great number two. And again, it's we both good. read these at different times, so yeah. that's coloring our opinion. But it's good to read both. Yes, no, read both. If you're, if yeah. you're, unlike, you unlike, who, you don't know who his opinion to follow, just read both. Yeah, unlike Crew Camp's book, both these books you can actually get at a reasonable price. <laughs> yeah, Crew Camp's book, you just, you just can't get Bushborn reviews anymore. Well, hopefully one day. Yeah. Hopefully by the time you're listening to this in, in 30 years, you can, you can get it. Yeah. So, anyways, it's, uh, it's, it is an absolute pleasure to do this book, and uh, I've. Um, I've had the absolute pleasure on, on my website, fireforceventures.com, of working with AJ Bellum in the past to raise some money for the Salute Scouts Association. So thank you, AJ, for allowing me to do that when we did do that together. And, uh, yeah, big, big thank you to him. Thanks for the plaque, by the way. It's proudly on my wall. I know he was quite, uh, he was quite pleased when I sent him the picture of it. But it's still up there after all these years. So, uh, yeah, big big thank you to you and um, to all of our listeners as well that do support us, especially John G. Yes. Jonathan G. we got to shout you out. Jonathan G. <laughs> is single-handedly funding the podcast. <laughs> well, he's not single-handedly funding it. There are a few others. Yes, but, that's true. There's... But uh, he's supported us for probably the, the longest period of time. And um, yeah. much appreciated. And Ethan, Ethan G. as well. Everybody with a surname G. Yes. So if your last name ends with G, please, uh, please give us your yes. name. You can do that on subscribe. You guys are real G's. Exactly. Exactly. So you, God, you, I hate you can myself for that, making that joke. Yeah, you, you, we do know it's midnight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so please um, consider supporting us on Subscribestar. It helps with our ability to get like better AV equipment. We actually want like a better facility or setup to do this. Just for better audio quality and, you know, have better um, guests and that kind of stuff. It, it really helps out, especially with uh, our podcast that we did with Larry. We had, we had a f- six hours of driving that day. Because we did it all in one day, right? Is that right? Six, six hours? Hey, Actually, did we do it all in one day? No, we did it. We did it. Uh, no, we did it in, we did it in two days because we, we, we went up further to Wainwright. But, like, we did that. We had, I think, 10 hours of driving total over those two days. Yes. So it was a lot of travel. It was a lot of Granted, money, only three of those were kind of connected to Larry, but yeah. <laughs> just... Yeah, we, we created pro- problems for ourselves. We have a whole, we have like a whole travel vlog on it, but you can only get that at the Fire Force Ventures Barks Club. Big shout out to those guys, by the way, that, that you know, because that, that money kind of supports this podcast as well if you join the bar. Uh, Fire Force Ventures Buyers Club, which entitles you to a 5% lifetime mm-hmm. discount at my website, fireforceventures.com, where we sell things military and Rhodesian. Uh, you can you can check that out at www.fireforceventures.com. We also have a great like Discord server that's super active, and uh, and it's a place where you can actually watch these video podcasts live. We're waving to the camera right now. Wave to the camera. So, um, yeah, it's a uh, big thanks to you guys for supporting the podcast uh, over at Buyer's Club for being a member. That helps fund this a little bit as well. And of course, if you want to support the podcast itself directly and Bindu's Beer Money Fund, I mean travel and AV equipment fund, you can always support the uh, 
Men Among Men Stories podcast directly on Subscribestar. You may also be listening on Commando Blog, our great friends at commandoblog.com that do all things guns, 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 and ammo, and uh, gear, lifestyle, and all the other other things associated with guns. Check them out there, commandoblog.com. That's commando with a K, K-O-M-M-A-N-D-O, blog.com. Also check out, you actually might be already there, www.menamongmenstories.com. Our podcast is there 24-7. You can listen to it at any time. iTunes, hopefully soon on Spotify and Google Podcasts as well. You'll be able to find us there. But in the meantime, you can always find us at menamongmenstories.com and commandoblog.com. So thank you so much for listening. Big shout out again to Mr. AJ Bellum for well, writing this book and uh, all the help he's done in the past. Yeah, and all the all the ch- all the chats we've had. So huge honor to be um, doing this book. Hopefully, we can chat soon. And uh, of course, big shout out to our many many followers that are either veterans or military or law enforcement first responders. You guys fight for the right for us to do this because you know we could very well be canceled one day. And no longer exist because we cover topics like this and we're not really afraid to, um, as per the last podcast. So, huge thanks to you guys for doing what we do. Or, sorry, do, doing what you do to allow us to do what we do. Huge shout out to you guys. Mindu? So, pull up, grab a chibouli, and have a very great night, guys. Or, or whenever you're listening to this. But I'm, <laughs> I'm going to bed. <laughs> Bye, guys.